Welcome to the August 2020 edition of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. Have you ever thought about becoming a credentialed genealogist? Well, the mother-daughter professional genealogy team of Diana Elder and Nicole Dyer are here to tell you more about it, what the credentials are, who the credentialing bodies are, and what's involved. And if you've been doing some DNA testing, you may have DNA results and matches with several different companies. Your DNA guide, Diane Southard, is going to be here to help answer the question, how do you keep them all organized? And then in our Best Genealogy website segment, author Rick Kroom is back on the show to talk about Genealogy Bank, and he's got some great strategies for getting the most out of that digital newspaper website. Andrew Cook, the editor of Family Tree Magazine, will be here to talk about what's coming up and some future issues. But first, we want to hear one of your genealogical journey stories, and we'll do that in Tree Talk. talk segment, Frances Sheldrick wrote in to share one of her genealogical journeys. She says, my great-grandparents, Roderick Kelly and Catherine Luther, were both immigrants from Ireland to Nepean, Ontario, Canada. They married and had eight children. In April 1871, Catherine, two of their sons, aged five and three, and a newborn infant daughter passed away. My grandmother, Bridget, then only 12 years old, took on the responsibility of her remaining four siblings. Four years later, the youngest child died of diphtheria at age six. Another two years passed before Roderick had a complete breakdown and was committed to an asylum. The four children, my grandmother, Bridget, her sister, Margaret, and brothers, John and William, scattered to the winds. It has taken me years to trace each of the children. I found William a few years ago via his death record in Seattle, Washington in 1833. He didn't have a published obituary, but I learned he had a son through the documents the funeral home had kept and kindly shared with me. I also learned John and Margaret never married, but Bridget married and had six children and 12 grandchildren. With the popularity of DNA testing along with extensive research, I began to uncover more of William's life. I traced him to three of his grandchildren in California. As more DNA connections and new information began to turn up, a second group of grandchildren were discovered in Western Canada. When a cousin living in British Columbia, Canada contacted me, my family history adventure became a present-day reality. She had seen my family tree on Ancestry.com, and having no knowledge of her great-grandfather, William Kelly Jr., she asked for more information. I shared what I knew and she, in turn, opened her family tree to me. I found an incredible number of descendants, and we began exchanging information regularly. A few weeks ago, my new cousin, my second cousin, twice removed, set up a family group site on Facebook and notified her relatives that they could cyber meet me. I signed on one evening and was overwhelmed by the enthusiastic and welcoming crowd of 65 cousins. Exchanging stories and memories is an emotional experience for all of us, and one I know I will never forget. To help share the stories, I created a website with blogs on each family member, including photos, copies of documents, and other media that will help these and future descendants carry on the story. 
If, like Francis Sheldrick, you'd like to share your genealogy story with us, email it to us at familytree at yankeepub.com. If you're passionate about genealogy, it may just have crossed your mind to go professional. And one of the first things to consider, of course, is being credentialed. Here to explain more about that process of getting your genealogy credentials are the authors of the article, Hanging Your Shingle, Diana Elder and Nicole Dyer. Welcome, ladies. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having us on. This is Diana. Hello, this is Nicole. Well, this is a great article, and it sure answers a lot of the questions that I know so many people have. You know, it's exciting to think about maybe becoming a professional genealogist, so you get to do it all the time. Let's talk a little bit first about the types of credentials that are out there, because I know that that can be a little confusing. You guys are unique in that you're a mother-daughter professional genealogy team, and Diana, I know that you have your AG credential Tell us what that is and what other types of certifications there are. Okay, sure. Well, I have the accredited genealogist credential, and that is through a group that we have abbreviated to ICAPGen because it's a very long name. It's titled the International Commission for the Accreditation of Professional Genealogists. So now you know why we just say ICAPGen, right? (laughs) Yes. And so... That group gives out the accredited genealogist credential. And then another major credentialing body is the Board for Certification of Genealogists. And we often just abbreviate that to BCG. And they give out the Certified Genealogist Credential. And then there's also a newer organization. And this is called the Council for the Advancement of Forensic Genealogy which gives out the FGC credentials. So we've got those three different bodies that, after going through a rigorous process, you can actually become credentialed, and then you get to put letters behind your name. Right, and those letters mean that you've been through some rigorous instruction and um, proven your work and all that kind of thing. Um, You mentioned BCG. And Nicole, um, I know that you're in the process of preparing your portfolio for BCG. Uh, Tell folks what the board is about, what they do, and is that, that's getting you one type of credential versus going through ICAPGEN, right? Right. There, There are just two bodies who, about the same year, in 1964, decided to offer professional credentials. And the Board for Certification of Genealogists is one of them. And they have also published um, Genealogy Standards, the booklet that goes through and just reviews all the most important standards for our field. And um, I really think everyone should get that and review it. It's wonderful. Um, the Board for Certification of Genealogists also um, provides the opportunity for genealogists to submit a portfolio to them, which they then give to three judges, and then the judges review the portfolio and see if it meets the excellent standards required to become certified. And then if a person does meet those standards with their work in their portfolio, then they are awarded the CG credential. So, Nicole, how did you make the choice between the two? And when folks look at this, what are they looking for that will differentiate them and help them make a decision? What a great question. I 
actually started working toward becoming an accredited genealogist, like my mom, of course. She's a great mentor. And um, at one point, I just thought to myself, wouldn't it be great for our business to have one of each, you know, somebody who's an accredited genealogist who specializes in a region um, geographically, and then um, somebody who's a CG who um, has understood their process of becoming certified, and it's just a little bit different. It's more portfolio-based and work samples that you can work on on your own time frame and then turn in the whole portfolio when you're done. And the big difference between that and the accreditation process from ICAPGen is that accreditation is more testing-based. And so once you turn in your initial report to ICAPGen, they look at that and see if you pass that level. Then the next levels are focused on testing. And you go in and uh, Proctor gives you a test and it's timed. And, and so some people may not like that because testing is harder for them or they get stressed out during tests. So maybe they would want to consider the certified genealogist option instead. And Diana, when you were making your choice, did you have an idea that one kind of suited you better than the other? And are they both what you might consider a generalist in genealogy? Well, they are both so beneficial. I'll just say that right now. They really help you raise your standards of research. And that was the reason I wanted to get a credential in the first place. But if you know Nicole and I, you'll know that we are Southern United States researchers. And I really like the idea that with the AG, I could specialize in Southern research. And I chose the Gulf South region for my accreditation region. And I found that doing all the preparation for that testing, which I know sounds scary, but you just prepare for it and it's open book. So you can use any resource you bring with you or have online. I found that the preparation for that really has helped me to tackle my southern brick walls and those of my clients as well. So I chose the AG because I wanted to have that focus on the south. And just because I'm a southern researcher doesn't mean I can't research in other places because the skills transfer. You know, they really do. You just learn the skills and they transfer to whatever region you are, are in. But for me, that was really probably the biggest thing that I looked at when I looked at both of them. So, Right. Now, would you say that uh, in both cases, is the investment in time and the investment in money about the same or do they vary quite a bit? They're really similar. It's $100 per level for the AG. And then for the CG, I believe it is something very similar. I think the total is $300 for the AG and $375 for the CG. Now with the AG, a lot of people say, do I have to come to Salt Lake City to test? Because traditionally it was all the testing was done at the Family History Library. But now we are working on having that testing be wherever you live. You know, you just find a library or, you know, some institution that will let you come have a proctored test. And then there's an additional fee for that. But, you know, like I always tell people, it's cheaper to pay that extra $100 than to fly to Salt Lake City and stay, you know, for a few days if you're not local. So there are some different options for that. 
Now, I know a lot of people, when they think about getting into the genealogy industry, they'll, I know when I run into folks, they'll ask me, you know, do you need to be certified? And I know it, it, it depends so much what it is you're going to do in genealogy. If you're going to take on client work, what do you say to folks that you talk to about how this certification is going to benefit them in their professional life? Well, getting a credential gives you confidence, for one thing, because people come to you as a professional with difficult problems. If they are genealogists and they've been doing this for a while, it may be a problem they've worked on for 20 years. And then they would like you to break down that brick wall for them. And that might seem very daunting, but if you have worked through either of the credentials, you're going to have so much more confidence that you could do that. And it gives your clients confidence in you as well because they know you had to do something to get that credential. So I really do encourage anyone who's thinking of becoming professional to really go for a credential. You know, even if you never take clients, it will help you be a better researcher, whether you go the BCG or ICAP-GEN route. Absolutely. So Nicole, you've been involved in this experience most recently. How has the experience been for you and what's it like? What can people expect if they go down this path? Well, it's been quite a learning opportunity when I first decided to become a certified genealogist and work toward that goal. It was scary. And I had heard that, you know, people who apply often don't get accepted or their portfolio fails to be passed. And so I was nervous that if I didn't prepare enough that I wouldn't pass either. So I really started working on my education and I spent all of last year going to institutes and doing, I did two virtual institutes and I attended the Salt Lake Institute of Genealogy in person in January of this year. And I'm so glad that I did because I think advanced education like that at institutes is just so important for preparation and um, helping you see maybe like the holes in your experience. And so I was, I was so happy that I did that. And now I'm just feeling like I need to carve out the time to actually work on the work samples. So I have one of them done, the research report prepared for another person because I did that, you know, a while ago. And I do research reports a lot more than all the other work samples. And so I just felt the strongest in that area. And the other ones I'm still working on. And it just takes a lot of time. And so I've been really working on um, kind of, cutting back on some of my other work and responsibilities so that I can really have the time to spend on this. And I think that's really important because um, when Diana was working on her accreditation, she kind of equated it to like getting a master's degree in genealogy, but you have to, um, you have to really teach yourself almost, and you have to give yourself that time to work on things and goals and assignments. You have to give yourself homework and then do it without anybody checking up on you. (laughs) So it's a challenge. But um, I found that doing study groups has really helped me. I've I've been a part of a few different study groups, and I'm currently doing the ProGen study group. and, And all of those type of things where there's accountability for reading and studying the textbooks in the field, those have been very helpful for me. And now I'm just in the phase of researching and writing. So I'm hoping to get it done relatively soon, but I'm not trying, I'm trying not to put a lot of pressure on myself to hurry and rush 
because I do want to make sure that I'm taking the time that it requires. And at first, when I decided to do this, I wanted to rush and get it done fast. But as I read through all the requirements, I decided, you know what, I want to make sure that I learn everything I need to about what's required and really understand the standards in genealogy standards and practice them. And I don't want to submit my first, you know, writing sample as part of my portfolio. I want to have several different ones that I've practiced on before. So the study groups have helped a lot. But the process is just, you know, a lot of um, practicing and kind of reviewing your practice work samples against the standards and seeing if, you know, they meet up, meet the standards in the rubrics and kind of doing that self-evaluation. So it's been a wonderful learning experience that I'm just excited to continue working on. With both organizations, did they give, do they give you a study plan? Because it, I know that there's, it's a fairly small uh, fee to, to do the actual getting the certification. Um, depending on where people are in their experience, they can jump in it, you know, it may take them longer or shorter. But I imagine many people will just go, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing to prepare for this. And it sounds like you've invested some money and some of the additional training. Give us a ballpark idea. How much time might somebody expect to invest to really do a thorough job in preparation for the test or the um, the final project? Well, I think a good amount of time is about two years of really working hard on education and planning and your work samples and things. I think that gives you plenty of time to go through all of the process if you're working on it for a significant amount of hours per week. And but if somebody who has a lot of experience already in genealogy and maybe has already been doing some client work and and has attended some of the advanced education opportunities already, they might not need that much time. They might be able to just, you know, work 30 hours a week on it and be done in six months. So I don't know. It just really depends. But um, we could ask Diana. I know she, I think her experience was about two years from decision to getting the credential. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was sitting in a class at a conference, the BYU Family History Conference, about accreditation, and I decided in that class that I was going to do it, and that was 2015, and two years almost to the date later, I received my credential. So I did set a plan that I would get this many hours a week in on all the different preparation. And then the testing for the AG, it just takes some time. You you know, you pass one level, then you have to wait a little bit for the next testing session and pass that. So two years, I think, is a great ballpark figure. Now, with the AG, you do have to have a 1,000 hours of experience in genealogy research and it doesn't necessarily have to be just research it could be attending conferences it could be listening to a podcast or reading books about genealogy and so we have to kind of do a ballpark figure of how many hours we think we have because you want to have a really good number of experience hours before you before you start the testing process. Well, it's quite a process, but I'm sure very, very gratifying when it's when you complete it. And it's something that uh, can really open all kinds of opportunities 
for those who take it on. Um, the article gives you lots and lots of great details on this. It's called Hanging Your Shingle, and you'll find it in the July-August 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine. You can also read more by Diana Elder and Nicole Dyer at their website, which is familylocket.com. Wonderful to talk with you, ladies. Thank you so much for um, shedding light on this important topic. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having us on, Lisa. Thank you. It was a delightful conversation. When you take a DNA test, of course, you're hoping for answers, but often the results generate more questions. And one of the most common questions revolves around testing with multiple companies. Well, here to provide some answers is Diane Southerd, your DNA guide. Welcome back to the show, Diane. Thank you, Lisa. And I think you're absolutely right. As more people are jumping on the DNA bandwagon, they're realizing that different companies offer different kinds of information. So they're testing everywhere, which is definitely the advice that we give. But man, it does create a lot of data, which means a lot of questions. Exactly. And I know a couple of years ago, you had done a Q&A article. And the question was, I've tested with five companies, or uh, yeah, and have so many DNA matches, how can I get them organized? What is the latest answer on this organizing of results coming from all different directions? Well, unfortunately, Lisa, there still isn't a really fantastic silver bullet solution to how to get all your data together in one place and analyze it all together. So for a lot of years, uh, people were using GEDmatch. Um, The problem with GEDmatch is that not everybody that's on each of your DNA testing platforms has transferred to GEDmatch. So you just see a very small subset of your DNA test matches on GEDmatch. So that doesn't really work. So there was another program called Genome Mate, and it basically let you import into its interface all of your DNA matches from all the companies. And at first, this seemed like a really fantastic solution. But unfortunately, the setup and the use of it is pretty complicated, in addition to the fact that once you get your DNA matches in there, they're almost immediately outdated because you're always getting new matches. So I wish I could tell you there was a really slick, fantastic, easy way to look at everybody all at once. But really, there isn't. So that just means we need to focus on one company at a time and and work out from there, essentially. Is there anything that folks can do, like with an Excel spreadsheet or something, where at least you're doing your work in each individual company, but somehow you can pull it together in one place? Absolutely. And there's a lot of examples of that um, from different genetic genealogists, ambitious genetic genealogists who have used spreadsheets to do that. And you can. Uh, the real problem is that you you need to like Excel. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of people just don't like Excel or haven't been trained in it, and it can be just overwhelming. I think one of the best things you can do is just to start small and to use the tools that are provided by your testing company. For example, all of our testing companies provide a notes feature. So you can take a note about any DNA match right there in your testing company. That's a great way to keep yourself organized. You can say things like, I contacted this match on this date, and they got back to me, and this is what they said. Or, hey, I looked through this match's pedigree, and I see these surnames that look familiar. Just you know, take notes, remind yourself of what you've already learned or already accomplished with this particular match. And I know something that you and I have talked about here on the show is formulating a really good question to start. So versus just 
constantly taking the influx of information, actually proactively having the question and then approaching the data to help answer it. Does that kind of help thin things or weed things down? I tell people the best organization tool is a question because honestly, you've got what, 20, 40,000 DNA matches. How many of them do you really need to look at? Right. Just a very small fraction really to answer a specific question that you have. So you might feel overwhelmed by so many matches, but really you only have a few you need to focus on. And that's really the next best organization tip is to find those what I call best matches. Those are the matches that have something to do with the question you want to answer. So one of the best ways to find that best match group is to start with a known match. So known matches are often overlooked because if I see you, Lisa, on my match list, and I already know you're my first cousin, I'm kind of like, oh, right, of course, that's Lisa. But really, you're very important because you can help me find matches that are related on the same side of the family that you are. Right. And it's a known commodity. So... Great point. Well, it sounds like we're still going to have to follow that that methodology, just like we do in our genealogical search in other areas. Uh, we're going to still lean on our research question and work with each company individually. It's going to be interesting to see who kind of masters this or somehow comes up with some amazing new tool we never thought of that might pull it all together. Who knows? It's always good to talk to you about DNA. Thank you so much for being here, Diane. Thanks, Lisa. Take care. In today's 101 Best Website segment, I've invited author Rick Kroom back to the show to share some research tips from his article. It's called How to Search Genealogy Bank Newspaper Records, and that article is now online and available to Family Tree Magazine premium subscribers. Welcome back to the show, Rick. Hi, Lisa. You know, Genealogy Bank, it's a website that regularly makes its way onto the 101 best websites for genealogy list here at Family Tree Magazine. So we know it's good, but you've got lots of tips in this article designed to make our research results great. So start us off, uh, make sure everybody's on the same page. Tell us about what Genealogy Bank has to offer. Well, Genealogy Bank has one of the largest collections of digitized U.S. newspapers. Their online collection includes thousands of newspapers, some from all 50 states, going all the way back to 1690. And they say that they have, well, that 90% of their newspapers are exclusive to Genealogy Bank. And um, I've spent a lot of time browsing through old newspapers on microfilm. You probably have, too. And you know that that's a time-consuming process. With Genealogy Bank, you can search through millions of newspaper pages at once and immediately find articles that might mention your ancestors or any topic you're searching on. And you might even locate relatives in places and in newspapers you never would have thought to check. That's so cool. And and what you mentioned is really significant, which is that 90% are unique to Genealogy Bank. And of course, with newspaper records, we know that they are in many different locations. So we can't rely on just one website to get us everything we need. So I guess the first thing we have to figure out is, do they have newspapers for the time 
and the place where we're doing research. Where do you begin in that search? Yeah, that's a good idea to acquaint yourself with Genealogy Bank when you first start out. Browse through their list of newspapers so um, you can see if they do have um, any publications from the places and time periods that might be relevant to your family history. And then when you're ready to begin a search, their search form gives you a lot of options. Um, You could start by searching for an ancestor's name. It's worth trying different versions of a person's name, like Jim or James. In the 19th century, men commonly went by their initials, so it's worth searching on, let's say, um, first and middle initials with a last name. Um, If it's an unusual name, you could start out by just searching on the last name and see how many matches you get. And if you get too many, you can always narrow down your search. Now, it's a subscription website. So can our listeners go check it out and kind of figure out if they have the right newspapers before they make a purchase? Uh, Yes, you can um, browse through the list of publications without um, paying anything, so you can really acquaint yourself with what they have. And I'm pretty sure you can, you know, do unlimited searches without paying just to see what kind of matches you get, too. So when we end up with a lot of matches, hopefully there's at least lots to choose from. Of course, like any website search, they're not all going to be good matches. What are some of your favorite tips for getting to the best matches, kind of narrowing things down? Well, Genealogy Bank gives you several options to focus your search on the most relevant articles. You can limit your search by a range of dates or by state, city, and even to a specific newspaper. Um, You can also search on keywords. So let's say you're searching on a common name like John Smith you might want to add a keyword associated with the person, such as an occupation, a place, maybe a college, a company, or a spouse's name. Um, For example, I've done a lot of research on my relative named John H. Pennington, and his scandalous personal life often made the headlines. He was a mystery until I searched through these uh, online newspaper collections, and then I really discovered a lot of details on him. I'm searching on just his last name, Pennington, with the keyword bigamy or divorce, turned up several articles detailing his marriages and even an affair with a married woman. So I really um, hit the jackpot in with online newspaper collections searching on him. Um, my article also tells how you can use wild cards and proximity searching to focus on the best matches. And if it turns out that you don't find um, good articles that you might expect to find, you know that the right newspapers from the right places are there, um, Genealogy Bank now makes it pretty easy to browse through newspapers. Um, So you can go directly to a a specific newspaper, a specific date, and um, kind of page through them just like you might have done in the olden days on microfilm. Um, though it's still easier than doing that. The advantage is you might pick up some articles that were missed in the indexing, maybe the optical character recognition, um, misread some letters. So that's why 
your searches don't turn up matches, or maybe you just want to uh, get a feel for what was happening in your ancestor's hometown um, at a certain time, it's really fun just to browse through some of these old newspapers, and they really give you a sense of what life was like um, in that time period and place. Absolutely. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a fun thing. You could spend a lot of hours doing that. Right. Now, you mentioned in the article um, something about starting with the Family Search Obituaries Index. So how could that help us before we go looking for obituaries over at Genealogy Bank? Genealogy Bank has over 250 million obituaries and newspaper death notices. And it seems that the recent obituaries on Genealogy Bank are indexed only by the main subject of the obituary, that is, the deceased person. Um, but Genealogy Bank has partnered with FamilySearch.org, which is a free site, a free website. And on FamilySearch.org, you'll find a collection called um, United States Genealogy Bank Obituaries, 1980 to 2014. It actually goes back to 1977. And it indexes every name in Genealogy Bank's obituaries, not just the main subjects. So when you're searching recent obituaries, a good strategy is to search the index on Family Search and then go back to Genealogy Bank and find the obituary. And it seems that um, this is maybe still an ongoing project. Um, Genealogy Bank continually adds more obituaries, but um, this search strategy, I think, is still um, well worth following. Um, you might very well find obituaries using this method that you would miss if you just searched the obituaries directly on Genealogy Bank. I, I could also mention that Family Search has recently added two other indexes. Um, they cover Genealogy Bank marriages and Genealogy Bank obituaries from 1815 to 2011. So again, you might want to search those indexes on Family Search, and if you get matches, then follow up and find the actual articles on Genealogy Bank. Boy, that's a great tip, and how wonderful that they're partnering together and just kind of making that search a little bit easier for all the rest of us. Yes. Another thing I could mention quickly, mm -hmm. Genealogy Bank has a tremendous collection of ethnic newspapers. Um, so you can focus your search on one of those collections. They're um, included when you search everything on Genealogy Bank, but you could limit yourself to one of these collections. They um, cover African-American, German-American, Hispanic-American, Italian-American, Irish-American, Jewish American, and Native American newspapers. So if you're researching ancestors um, who were um, members of any of those groups, it might be worth focusing on those newspapers, and you might have good luck finding, let's say, articles pertaining to your immigrant ancestors or ancestors who lived in a town that was heavily settled by, by one of those groups. I assume some of those are also foreign language and they're not in English. So if we were going to put some keywords along with, a, let's say, a surname, we might want to keep in mind to, to do it in that language. That's right. For example, um, I think many of the German-American newspapers are 
uh, are actually German language newspapers. Right. So you have to remember to search on German words. Great. Well, gosh, it's amazing. <laughs> the collection that they have there, we've been talking about Genealogy Bank at genealogybank.com. And uh, as Rick said, you can browse and kind of see what they have. And then they do have a subscription available as well. And we've been talking about Rick's article, How to Search Genealogy Bank Newspaper Records, which if you are a Family Tree Magazine premium subscriber, you've got access to that. I'll have a link in the show notes. Rick, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for sharing all your great strategies. Thanks, Lisa. It was fun. Before we wrap up this August episode of the podcast, let's check in with Andrew Cook at the editor's desk. Andrew, what can we look forward to in the September-October 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine? Hi, Lisa. We're really excited for this September-October issue because we got to sit down with the researchers behind PBS's Finding Your Roots with Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. And they shared some great tips for finding information and uncovering family stories, plus some really interesting anecdotes about their experiences with celebrity guests. So a lot of practical information in there. Um, Whether or not you're a fan of the show, I think you uh, will get a lot of great information from that article. Oh, yeah, I bet they have some excellent tips for getting around and find the the really interesting stories. Fantastic. Yeah. And um, in the issue, we also have a pretty detailed buyer's guide for DNA tests that provide both health and ancestry information, which has been a focus for a lot of the big testing companies in recent years. Uh, So if you're looking to get into that market, we cover the big four ancestry DNA 23andMe, MyHeritageDNA, and LivingDNA, and the strengths and weaknesses of each. I know we touched on that with um, Diane in a previous podcast episode, so this mm-hmm. is going to be far more in-depth. That A lot of people have questions about that, you know, and, and how the tests vary. Anything else we should keep an eye out for? Yes. We have uh, an article on the different ways that federal, state, and local governments affect your genealogy research, which is especially important to keep in mind with elections coming up this fall. So we talk about um, how governments impact what records are created, how they're accessed, uh, how you can request various vital records and who's eligible even to request them. So a lot of good information there as well. And I know you guys have also been very busy with Family Tree University. I'm teaching a, a Google class right now. What else is going on over at the university? Well, we've had a great summer at Family Tree University. We've had record numbers, especially in our courses on Family Tree Maker and Ancestry.com. So first of all, I want to say thanks to everyone who's participated and given us some great feedback. We're looking to keep it rolling in August and September. We've got courses coming up on Italian genealogy, land records, research logs. And in late September, we actually have a new course that's starting on MyHeritage. Oh, great. I was going to say, I don't think I've seen a MyHeritage course. Mm-hmm. There. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, obviously a great resource for genealogists, and we're excited to dig into all the different aspects of that website. And you're continuing on with the webinars as well? Yes. Back in July, we restarted our live webinar program, and this is a one-hour live presentation that you can sign up for via GoToWebinar, and in it, one of our experts will prepare some remarks on a genealogy subject and then answer questions from the audience. So Really great and informative presentations. The presentation from July was on city directories, and our webinar coming up in August 
is on non-U.S. census records, which is a useful but sometimes hard-to-find record group. Oh, exactly. Well, okay. Well, everybody listening can find out about all the courses at familytreemagazine.com slash course. And of course, uh, Andrew, it sounds like we're, we're going to look forward to that September, October 2020 issue. It sounds terrific. Thank you so much. Always good to talk to you. Yes, thank you. Thanks for joining me for the August 2020 episode of Family Tree Magazine. I will have show notes for you and you will find them at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. There you'll find notes on what we talked about and links to the website. And of course, I'm Lisa Louise Cook. And if you want to visit me at my website, you can do that at genealogygems.com. There you can listen to the Genealogy Gems podcast, which is also available through our own Genealogy Gems podcast app, as well as all the other major podcasting services. And watch my weekly video show, Elevenses with Lisa, which is available on my website and also on the Genealogy Gems YouTube channel. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.